Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. On the 24th of March, 1953... Police were called to an address in Notting Hill to investigate a potential murder. When they arrived, they were shown to a hole in a wall, and inside, they were shocked to find not one singular victim, but three separate women, all bound in bedsheets. The tenant wasn't responsible for these murders, but he and his landlord had a good idea who might have been, and the thing was, the death toll didn't end there. Below their feet, unbeknownst to them as they stood discussing the horrors they'd already found, lay a graveyard of victims waiting to be unearthed, and a subsequent manhunt to find their killer. Today on Macabre London, we uncover the murder house at 10 Rillington Place and the many crimes of John Reginald Christie. And welcome back to another episode of Macabre London. I'm Nikki Druce, your host with a silent G. And today I'll be taking you on a journey down another of London's grimy back streets to uncover a macabre tale from the city's past. And today it doesn't get more grimy than visiting 10 Rillington Place, the most infamous murder house in the whole of London. However, before we get into today's episode, if you're new here and you want to see more videos where we deep dive into some lesser known historic tales from London's past, and in fact, all over the world, then please don't forget to subscribe or follow so you never miss a new episode. If you aren't new here and you regularly enjoy the show and want it to continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. There's loads of bonus content over there, including my monthly show, Gin and Ghost Stories, where I drink gin and tell ghost stories, my new show with my long-suffering other half called Having a Problem, which is lots of silly fun with a bit of history thrown in, and lots of other fun spooky bonus bits and bobs too. 
I'm reading a book all about weird London history over there at the moment. So if you fancy a slightly less professional sounding audiobook narrator who might be slightly tiddly, then why not take a look on patreon.com forward slash macabre London. I'd love to see you there. When police were called to an address in Notting Hill on the 24th of March 1953, they weren't prepared for what they found. Discovered by another tenant of the property, an alcove in the kitchen revealed the body of three women who had been unceremoniously dumped there, and the neighbour had a good idea who may well have been responsible for these heinous crimes. But little did they know, more devastation was about to be uncovered when they started searching the house and its small yard. What they found was only the tip of the iceberg. However, the police already knew this address, as a few years earlier, they'd removed two bodies from the garden, both of whom had been murdered. But the resident was never charged for the crimes. But someone else did end up paying for them. So let's head back to the very beginning of this story and uncover the story of John Christie and his many victims. John Reginald Halliday Christie was born on April 8, 1899, in North Arham in West Yorkshire. He was the penultimate child of seven siblings, and his early life was marked by challenges and personal struggles, which would go on to shape the man he became. His home life was turbulent and disruptive, growing up in an abusive household with an authoritarian father. His carpet designer father, Ernest, brought John up alongside his siblings in a harsh environment. He was incredibly strict and unrelenting on his family and would punish anyone for even slightly slipping out of what he deemed to be acceptable behaviour. His mother, Mary, walked a strange line of being strict but mollycoddling, which meant John was a confused child who never knew whether he was loved or hated by the person who was meant to adore him the most. Mary would let John get away with things his father never would, but as he grew up, her stance towards her second-to-last child changed and she spent her time berating and belittling him, using pejorative terms to make him feel unloved and unwelcomed in the family home. John's sisters began to bully John and he hated them for it. His mother began to side with his sisters and the general vibe within the household was an unhappy one. However, when John's granddad, who also lived with them and was perhaps the most feared person in the household, the definition of generational trauma being handed down there, well, when he passed away and was laid out in their living room as bodies were back then, John said he felt a calm sense of power at seeing his lifeless body and experienced a strange victory over the old man. And from then on, he found a calmness in death. As a child, John experienced a variety of health issues, including a speech impediment, frequent bedwetting and problems with his respiratory system. Whilst these afflictions did gain him attention from his mother, they did also lead to ridicule and this would go on to mean John had a complicated relationship with his health in later life, developing hypochondria in order to get people to lavish him with attention in the only way he knew how. Alongside his physical ailments, his hypochondria was the first sign that his mental health was also not in peak condition, as he had trouble with a variety of mental ailments and problems with knowing wrong from right. 
In particular, when he started growing older, he found himself being attracted to his sisters in an inappropriate way. But he knew enough to never act on that and his manipulative behaviour started to be honed into a skill as he also worked out that he was more intelligent than the majority of other children he went to school with. His high IQ, which would later be reported as 128, which is just two points shy of the Meta accepting score of 130, puts him into the top tier of wrinkly-brained people. This above-average IQ landed John a scholarship to Halifax Secondary School, and before long he was excelling at mathematics, history and woodwork. At the age of 14 in 1913, John left school and got his first job at the local cinema as an assistant projectionist. And as somewhat of a strange child, he preferred the darkness of the cinema to hanging around with his peers. As his teenage years progressed, John managed to find some friends and, in particular, caught the eye of a fellow teenage girl. One evening, the two were messing around, doing things teenagers do, and she was disappointed to find that John couldn't perform, as it were, and soon after, she ended things with him because of it. She then went on to tell her friend about the failed encounter, and the fellow kids in the town started referring to John as Can't Do It Christy. Of course, this only helped to exacerbate his now burgeoning misogynistic tendencies and his disdain for those around him. However, World War I had just started and conscription came for Christie, enlisting him in the army, getting him away from the embarrassment of his hometown. He spent the next three years in military service and ended up fighting in France where he endured a mustard gas attack which rendered him, well, according to Christie himself, blind and mute for the following three years. However, the army wouldn't have let Christie return home if he had been so severely injured and so we have to assume this was a big porky pie made up by John to get more attention when he returned home. It's likely Christie was injured in the attack, but not quite to the extent he would go on to tell people. He used these injuries to his advantage when he returned to the UK and spoke with a soft voice, which helped to get him the attention he desired, despite people saying he could be loud when he wanted to be. John was made demob happy when he was demobilised in 1919, and he returned to Yorkshire. Upon his return, he met Ethel Waddington, a 22-year-old woman who took to the seemingly shy and quiet Christie, who had returned from World War I a war-wounded hero. In less than a year, the two were married, but the marriage was doomed from the start. Christie's old nickname resurfaced as he couldn't perform in the marriage, and Ethel was keen to start a family, which John couldn't give her. She did become pregnant early in the marriage, but suffered a miscarriage, and then with John's problems, she didn't conceive again. Neighbours said the pair were often heard arguing, which is interesting for a man whose voice was said to be permanently damaged from the mustard gas attack, and that Ethel often seemed to be frightened of her spouse, with friends and family noticing she was visiting them more frequently. Ethel's regular absences didn't bother John, as this gave him the opportunity to begin stepping into the world of visiting the town's sex workers. 
Now, you may think this strange, seeing as this was a man who seemingly wasn't able to perform, but John had some strange needs and desires that he didn't feel comfortable asking Ethel to do, in fear that she would mock him, which would bring up his past embarrassments and securities. John would engage in rougher play with these workers than he felt he could ask Ethel to engage in, but he also had a proclivity for them lying completely still whilst he had his way with them. These dalliances with women of the evening were just that, a temporary fix, and even though they satiated John's desires for a short while, he could never get what he needed from Ethel, and she was miserable and fearful of him, leading the two to separate but not divorce after just four years together and three years of marriage. Ethel moved back to Sheffield with her family, where she worked temporary jobs in the town's many factories, and John packed up and moved to London for a fresh start. Once John had moved to London, he had a variety of jobs which he supplemented with petty crime. However, he either wasn't particularly good at it, or he didn't care if he got caught. Back when he was in Yorkshire and married to Ethel in 1921, he'd taken a job as a postman but got caught stealing postal orders from their intended recipients and was placed in Manchester prison for three months. Now in London and able to hide amongst the population, John tried his hand at stealing money but was caught and charged with violent conduct and obtaining money on false pretenses. However, this time he narrowly avoided being placed back behind bars and just had to be on probation for a year. But he couldn't keep his nose clean and was soon convicted again on two counts of larceny and put behind bars for two consecutive sentences, which totaled nine months served at His Majesty's pleasure at Wandsworth Prison in 1924. Once he left prison for the second time, John got his act together and managed to hold down a job as a lorry driver. However, he couldn't help himself, and it wasn't long before he was back behind bars yet again. By this time, John was living with a girlfriend, Maud Cole, with whom he had an off-and-on relationship. Maud found Christy to be likeable at first, but it wasn't long before she grew tired of him and found him to be unpredictable and a drain on her finances. Maud had a son whom she loved dearly, but she found John to be cruel towards him. And one evening, after a row at the dinner table, Maud asked John to leave. However, he didn't want to go without leaving Maud with a reminder of him. Just as he went to leave, he grabbed the nearest thing he could that would injure Maud, which just so happened to be her son's new cricket bat, and with full force, smacked her in the back of the head with it. Maud was knocked unconscious by the forceful blow, and John then grabbed her by the throat with rage, but left before he could do any further damage. Despite the vicious attack, Maud survived and went to the police to tell them what had happened. Christie was arrested and found guilty of the unprovoked attack, which he said was an accident and unintentional. But luckily, the judge saw through this blatant lie and said he believed the attack to be murderous in its intention so he sent him back to Wandsworth Prison for what I personally feel was too short a sentence of just six months' hard labour. But this was probably legally all he could get for that offence at the time. In 1933, John stole a car and was caught. Again, he was put back behind bars for a further three months. 
During his time inside for this offence, John had time to reflect on his life thus far and decided he needed to have some stability around him, so he decided to get in touch with Ethel and ask her if she might think about moving to London to give things a second chance and to rekindle their marriage. It had seemed up until this point, with the exception of the crime against Maud, which would hint at Christie's later intentions towards women, that he'd been committing petty crimes and perhaps getting intentionally caught so he could get attention. His petty criminality meant he could be caught without too much of a consequential punishment and then be incarcerated somewhere with reassuring discipline, which he remembered from his childhood and his young adult life in the army. Now, with this new repentance side to him and what we can only assume to be a hell of a lot of love bombing from John, Ethel decided she would rekindle her romance with her estranged husband and so she moved to London to be with him once more. As John had now turned over a new leaf, he found a place to rent for him and Ethel to move into in Notting Hill at 10 Rillington Place, an end of terrace property which was hemmed by a tall brick wall which made the street a dead end in both the literal and later on, sadly, the metaphorical sense. At the time, Ethel probably wondered exactly what she had got herself into, as Notting Hill was, unlike today, an undesirable area, and little did she know she'd just moved into a house that was going to become a household name for all the wrong reasons within just a few years. The history of Notting Hill has always been fairly representative of class battles and an exercise in what happens when you put two groups of people from the opposite end of the social scale next door to one another, making them neighbours. From the mid-1800s, the area changed from a quiet rural hamlet into an urban area. Housing was built to attract the most affluent, and in order to do so, the buildings were made to be impressively large – much larger than anything that was available in central London at the time, and they were a fraction of the price. However, the landowners in the area hugely overestimated how popular the new gauche housing would be, and their plan to attract rich Londoners to their neck of the woods failed. As the rich could afford to buy properties in central London, even though they weren't quite as large, the convenience of living centrally couldn't be beaten. However, those in the middle classes benefited as they were given very good deals on these huge Victorian new builds and they moved in in droves. However, as time passed and machines replaced man with menial tasks being improved with the addition of electricity to middle class homes, servants were less required. Plus, World War I caused many people to move away and out of London in fear that the bombing they endured may well get worse in the subsequent years, and they weren't wrong to speculate that to be the case. As such, the landowners had no other prospects for their grandiose townhouses than to split them up into smaller flats or rent them out to multi-occupancy households to avoid them sitting empty. In the area, amongst other small warehouses and factories, was a brick-making kiln which attracted many rural workers, all of whom needed housing and the area's market value quickly depreciated as it turned into a slum off the back of greedy landlords. During World War II, the area was hit many times by the Luftwaffe and the streets became a strange juxtaposition of faded glory grandiose Victorian townhouses and rubble. 
During this time, one particularly unscrupulous landlord, Peter Rackman, bought a load of houses in the area for next to nothing and began renting them out to desperate people. After World War II had left many people homeless as a result of bombs, family members dying, which changed their financial situation, or simply landlords kicking people out so they could sell their properties before they were reduced to rubble, things were rough in the renting market. Peter Rackman did nothing to improve the situation, buying up over 100 properties in the area and then renting them out for cheap to attract tenants, and then hiking the rents sky high. He took advantage of immigrants from the West Indies and Ireland, whom it was perfectly legal at the time to refuse renting to, just because of the colour of their skin or where they came from. And so Peter welcomed these people with open arms. However, his intentions weren't from a place of kindness. They were from a place of greed. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Rackman squeezed as many people as he could into his households and offered poor quality accommodation for exorbitant fees. But with the option of there or nowhere, the residents couldn't refuse and were beholden to his abuse. But Rackman didn't stop there. He created a boomtown which ran to his own set of rules. He bought several blocks of flats and turned them into brothels, offering women who had fallen on hard times as a result of the war a place to live as long as they worked for him without a cut of the revenue he was making from them. He became so infamous in his abysmal business practices that even the Cray twins, Ronnie and Reggie, the East End's most infamous gangsters, looked up to him as a bastion of ruthless business practices. Later on in the 1960s, the pair would try and take over his yard in Notting Hill and threatened Rackman so much that he just gave the craze their first but one of his many nightclubs, Esmeralda's Barn, simply so they would leave him alone. 
Despite the majority of slums having been removed in London by the early years of the 20th century, Rackman kept them alive and kicking in Notting Hill, creating some of the worst and most dangerous areas London has ever known. On just one street in 1923, Southam Street in Kensal Green lived 2,400 people crammed into 140 houses. Rackman became so synonymous with slum landlordism that the term Rackmanism was coined and added to the Oxford English Dictionary and his despicable legacy is still felt throughout the poorer areas of the borough over 50 years later. Luckily, his crass disregard for human life did ultimately lead to changes in renting legislation, but by this time, a lot of the damage had already been done. So, although people may now think of this area as a lovely rom-com-type village with cute bookshops and coffee bars, the truth is it was the first gentrified area of London, with many people opting to buy up the large rundown properties in the 90s for a bargain price forcing people out of the area, and perhaps the ultimate signal of this is that the family favourite Paddington films are set there in one of these lovely enormous townhouses. If it had been a few decades earlier when those films were shot, it would have been a very different movie, and not quite so wholesome, probably more depressing. Anyway, back to Ten Rillington Place. Ethel had moved in with John into the less-than-average ground-floor flat, The house, which was split into three flats, had one shared outside toilet and the space was small and cramped. The high wall at the end of the street shielded residents from the tube line which was next door, but which would have been loud, noisy and unpleasant to live next to. Alongside a job working in a cinema, John also took up a part-time role with the police, becoming a special constable. You would think this would be impossible for someone with quite such an extensive criminal record, but no one thought to check and they just accepted him and gave him a job. This allowed Christy valuable insight into the inner machinations of how the criminal justice system worked and allowed him to learn from the inside out. But, of course, John couldn't allow himself to just have a job and live a normal life. He had to do something to deviate from the norm. And so he began having an affair with a woman who worked at the police station. Now, this wasn't anything new. The whole time he'd been married to Ethel, he'd been unfaithful. He'd had a few mistresses and regularly visited sex workers. But this time, it came back to bite him on his skinny posterior. The husband of Gladys Jones, whom John had taken a shine to, found out about the affair and tracked Christie down to his home address and went and beat him for being with his wife. Now, I know this isn't the way to act at all in that situation, but I can't help but feel it was a little bit of karma for what he did to Paul Maud with the cricket bat a few years previously. However, it may well have been the inciting incident of what was to come in the following year. Now, here seems like a good point to take a little break and to hear from our wonderful sponsor of today's show, London Nootropics. Now, usually when I get sponsors for the show, they approach me, but this time round, I got in touch with London Nootropics as I really wanted to share their fantastic products with you all, and I'm so pleased I did because they agreed. So let me tell you a little bit about them and why I love their adaptogenic coffee. I first discovered London Nootropics and their adaptogenic coffee when I was trying to find something to help me with unpleasant lingering brain fog following about a particularly unpleasant COVID. 
I bought a box thinking it wouldn't do very much, but I was blown away by how effective it was at giving me the clarity I was desperately searching for and how much I enjoyed it. And I've had a subscription with them ever since. So let me tell you a little bit about them. London Nootropics Adaptogenic Coffee Blends are designed to help you stay balanced, find your flow and have the most productive day possible. They give you all the benefits of regular coffee whilst minimising side effects such as jitters, anxiety and a crash. They're lovingly made with the highest quality medicinal mushroom extracts and each blend is designed for a specific purpose. Now, this is the thing I love about them. They don't just have one bulk standard drink. These are all formulated especially to help you throughout the day and that's the thing I love about this company. They have thought about everything from giving you a morning blend in the form of flow, which helps with mental clarity and focus to kickstart your day, mojo to help with that mid-morning slump and zen to alleviate stress, which I find particularly helpful for bringing you back to it after lunch, but without the overstimulating effect regular coffee has on me. So I spoke to Zane, who is one of the two London Nootropics owners, who is so, so lovely. And I asked him about why their drinks are so good. And he assured me it's all down to the ingredients they use. I took a look at their website and he wasn't lying. The amount of thought that has gone into this product is so refreshing, as there are sadly so many brands out there which are just, well, looking to sell you something which isn't that great. So on their website, I delved into the sourcing of their active compounds, of their extracts, because I was genuinely curious to find out more. And I was so pleased to see that every single one was named as to what they are and where they come from. So the adaptogenics they use include lion's mane, which is proven if taken regularly to improve long-term memory, mental clarity and brain health, amongst a wealth of other benefits. You have rhodiola rosea, which is a known stress buster. And they source this from Rodeo Life, which source it from some of the oldest growers in Siberia who have been using it for centuries. And a fun fact, Rodeola was given to Soviet astronauts to provide physical and mental benefits before going into space, which is pretty damn cool. Then we have cordyceps. These guys are the all-rounder wonder mushroom with health benefits which range from immune-boosting properties to resistance to fatigue and have shown to be great at combating jet lag. They even helped China win three gold medals in the National Games in 1993. Then we also have ashwagandha, which is the current IT supplement of choice, as it's also a stress reliever, and the stuff they use at London Nootropics has a high bioavailability, which means it actually absorbs into your system, unlike a lot of others out there. Then there's also their CBD powder, yes, a powder, so it actually mixes in with the drink, unlike a lot of CBD drinks which have oils instead, so you get all of the goodness. Now the best part of this is the convenience. These are individual sachets that arrive at your door in lovely packaging, which you can then take with you wherever. I love them for work and for travelling, and you don't need any fancy kit to make them, just some boiling water and a milk of your choice. They're genuinely delicious and they all taste really good. Mojo is probably my favourite tasting one as it's a little bit chocolatey tasting and they really exceeded my expectations as I thought instant coffee couldn't actually be this nice and I have actually shunned my coffee maker now in favour of these. Now all of this sounds really expensive, right? Well, I thought so too, but it's actually really reasonable. A one-off mix box starts at just £15, which will get you a mix of Flow, Mojo and Zen across 12 sachets. They also do subscriptions, which I personally have, which saves you around 20%. But wait, I have a lovely discount code for you, so you can try it out for yourself and see what you think. 
Try London Nootropics today and find your flow by heading to londonnootropics.com and enjoy 20% off with the code MACARB. That's L-O-N-D-O-N-N-O-O-T-R-O-P-I-C-S dot com and use the code M-A-C-A-B-R-E for 20% off your purchase. Oh, and they also do free shipping in the UK if you spend over £30, but they ship internationally too. Even Kim Kardashian drinks it. And if that's not a claim to fame, I don't know what is. Thanks for listening and letting me share this hero product of mine with you. And now let's get back to the episode. After John had got into trouble for his affair with Gladys, he went back to paying for the company of women. Unfortunately for Ethel, she either knew about John's extracurricular activities and chose to turn a blind eye to it, or she had absolutely no idea. After all, she would leave London and return to stay with family frequently and for extended periods of time. And it's safe to say that even though the pair had rekindled their marriage, things had pretty much gone straight back to being terrible. Part of me thinks that as it was during World War II and the height of the Blitz, that firstly, Ethel didn't want to be in London during that time anyway, but that she was hoping one day she'd return to find a flattened house, which included John in its rubble. Anyway, this absence meant John could do whatever he liked when his wife was away, including bringing women back to the flat, and it was during one of these absences that John would make a decision that would have grave consequences for one of these women, and begin a vile murder spree which would last for years. One day, a 21-year-old young woman by the name of Ruth First was in a snack bar on Labrook Grove when she approached the softly spoken John Christie and solicited him. Ruth was an Austrian munitions worker, and as it was tough being Austrian and living in England at the time due to the war, she had to carry out extra adult work to make ends meet, quite literally in this case. 44-year-old Christy, who was 23 years her senior, was happy this pretty young girl had taken an interest in him, and he agreed to her offer. The pair made the 10-minute walk back to 10 Wellington Place, and unfortunately for Ruth, this would become her permanent address. Ruth was obliging to John's requests for rough play, and sadly for her, he tied a rope around her neck and strangled her to death during the act, having got carried away in the throes of passion. John was a combination of horrified at what he'd done, overwhelmed with a sixth sense of power, and panicked that he would get caught. The murder had been accidental, but there was no way anyone would believe him. Plus, the shame of anyone finding out about his proclivities, his adulteration, and the immense shame he held within himself was too much, and so he decided to bury poor Ruth beneath the floorboards of the one-bed flat. However, he knew this wouldn't be a long-term solution, and so the next night, under the cover of darkness, he dug a grave and buried her in the small yard at the back of the house. Seemingly in an act of guilt, or perhaps more to save himself from being found out, John soon after resigned from his part-time policeman role and distanced himself from his job. This accidental murder didn't immediately start a killing spree as it would be over a year before Christie would strike again. Finding new employment at a radio factory in Acton, a few miles from his home, he struck up a friendship with one of the workers there, Muriel Edie. Muriel was known to have respiratory problems and suffered with regular bouts of bronchitis. 
Christy heard her coughing in the factory and kindly offered his expertise to help solve her problems. After all, he'd suffered a mustard gas attack during the war, and so he could empathise with her problems. However, this wasn't a kindly gesture. Back at home, John had been creating a device, which would be Muriel's downfall. One day after work, John offered for Muriel to accompany him back to Tenrillington Place, so he could share with her his special concoction of Friar's Balsam in a jar. Friar's Balsam is a known remedy for coughs and colds, and you can still buy it today. It's completely harmless and actually is quite effective for colds. However, this special mixture which Christie had made wasn't what he was reporting it to be. First off, he did use the Friar's Balsam, but then when Muriel's back was turned, he switched the tube, feeding in the vapour that would make her unconscious. Muriel trusted that John cared for her and was trying to help her, but within minutes, she was knocked out. Unbeknownst to poor Muriel, she'd been inhaling coal gas, a variant of domestic gas which holds a higher carbon monoxide content than today's regular household supply, and one which was later outlawed for this very reason. Once she was out cold, John assaulted Muriel, and then whilst doing so, strangled her to death with a length of rope. Her body was then taken outside into the yard under the cover of darkness, and buried in the same spot as poor Ruth. For the next four years, Christy behaved himself, and the bodies in his yard remained a secret to everyone except him. However, he couldn't contain his violent thoughts, and when a newly married couple moved into one of the upstairs flats, he couldn't keep his nose out of their business. But that's a story for the next episode. Next time on Macabre London, we'll be delving into part two of this horrible tale and finding out how the crimes at Tenrillington Place went on to change the justice system forever and how the House of Horrors took on a life of its own. So make sure you're subscribed if you're not already so you don't miss it, as things are about to get much, much worse. this episode i can't wait to see you back for part two next time i know this episode and probably the next one for that matter will 1000 percent be demonetized on youtube because of their content so if you want to help me get paid for spending so many hours writing and researching this one then your support would be so magical and hugely enormously appreciated so you can support me in a variety of ways including signing up to my patreon using the thanks button on youtube heading to my coffee page or checking out my amazon wishlist or buying some merch i also have my paypal link if you just want to bung me a couple of quid to help me recoup my losses on the large amount of gin I had to down whilst learning about all of this awfulness so I could share it with you. If you head to the support me section in the show notes on the podcast or just click on the video info on YouTube then everything you need is there. And it's not all about money. Sharing the show around on social media, telling your friends, your postman, the checkout lady at Costco about the show all really helps me out. And I passed 3,000 subscribers on YouTube recently, which is amazing. So thank you all so, so very much for subscribing. And if you're listening to the podcast and ever been curious about what I look like, then pop over to YouTube so you can finally put a face to the voice. I do wear some fabulous outfits that are worth checking out and I'd love to see you over there. 
Leaving a review also helps. A comment, a thumbs up, follow, subscribe, all of that fun stuff, which is all 100% free and helps grow our lovable gang of ghouls and will allow me in the long run to bring you more of the haunted history we both love. A big thanks to my amazing top-tier legendary executive Patreon producers, Amy, Christina, Christoph, Kate, Kevin, Mary, Rose, Sally, Sam, Sarah, Teresa, Terry, V, and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. If you'd like to join them in having your name read out by me at the end of every episode or your name in the show notes, then make sure you check out my Patreon, where you can also get exclusive episodes like the show I have with my long-suffering other half called Having a Problem, where we have a general chit-chat about a topic once a fortnight and try to solve the overarching problem we both have with it, with not very much success so far. So far, we've solved issues with robots, exercise, school, and our next one is video games. They're a little bit history-based, a little bit fact-based, and a lot silly, so make sure you check that out. And there's also loads of other bonus content over there too, literally hours of it, and it's all very reasonably priced. I hope to see you over there so I can personally welcome you to the Ghoul Gang. And lastly, thanks very much to London Nootropics for sponsoring this episode. Please do go and take a look at their website. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. I love their products so, so much. And you will too. And don't forget your discount code, MACARB, for your 20% off. Thanks for joining me for another MACARB tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce. Remember to stay spooky. And I'll see you ghouls next time for part two. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.